This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from history to, well, just about any story you send us. And we love producing those stories and sending them back to you, putting them on the airwaves, because the American people live extraordinary lives, and you have extraordinary stories to tell. And by the way, we also love telling stories about our great American artists, And periodically, we do readings from some of the great American literary works. We've had Vincent Price reading The Raven, a remarkable reading from The Old Man and the Sea, Hemingway's great novel, or almost long, short story. Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the reading for that is terrific. And when you hear it, you're going to be thinking, my goodness, we're arguing about the same things we did almost two and a half centuries ago. And my favorite, The Great Gatsby, one of my favorite American novels, and we have a dramatic reading from the end of that, and you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and search for any of those, and they're terrific and they're beautiful to listen to. Up next, from Boston, is a man who discovered a love for poetry as an adult, and, well, you wouldn't think that the job that he has would be conducive to a guy who, well, really has a taste for poetry. Let's take a listen to this story from a member of our audience in the Boston area. My name's John Doherty. I'm from Brenton, Massachusetts, 34 years old, and I'm a construction worker for the Boston Gas Company. We do outside construction work, providing natural gas for residents or businesses. So uh, a lot of um, digging laying pipelines, tapping into gas mains, all outdoor work. The satisfying thing about the job is you're working with a dangerous element, really. So it's, it's important to be exact in everything you do. You certainly don't want to leave any kind of a gas leak behind. So, um, you know, you have to be careful. You have to pay attention. Poetry was, was definitely intimidating initially. Uh, It just looked like a lot of words that were out of order and out of place and uh, did not belong together. And that's that's the challenge of it. It just takes a lot of reading and rereading to grasp it. But once you do, once you come to understand it, you've achieved something. So now you feel good. Song of Myself is a poem that I probably had a lot of difficulty understanding the first time. And there were certain lines that caught me and that I liked. And when I got to the very end of this very long poem, um, the last half dozen lines, uh, so encouraging. He, in those last few lines, Whitman tells you what you're thinking. He says that you probably didn't understand what you just read, but stay with it and you will and you'll love it. And so it felt like it was speaking directly to me when I first read it, and I keep those lines in mind no matter what I read now. The connection I feel with Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, is not due to the fact that he talks about laborers, physical labor working outside, and like the common working American. Uh, that's a nice touch in it, of course, but. I enjoyed it for its, its 
upliftingness, its its ability to inspire me and and see things in life and in everyday existence that I hadn't noticed before, that I might have taken it for granted before. Song of Myself by Walt Whitman. There is that in me. I do not know what it is, but I know it is in me. Wrenched and sweaty, calm and cool, then my body becomes. I sleep, I sleep long. I do not know it, it is without name. It is a word unsaid. It is not in any dictionary, utterance, symbol. Something it swings on more than the earth I swing on. To it, the creation is the friend whose embracing awakes me. Perhaps I might tell more. Outlines. I plead for my brothers and sisters. Do you see, O oh my brothers and sisters? It is not chaos or death. It is form, union, plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. The spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my loitering. I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yop over the roofs of the world. The last scud of day holds back for me. It flings my likeness after the rest, and true as any on the shadowed wilds. It coaxes me to the vapor and the dusk. I depart as air. I shake my white locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies and drift it in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And thank you to John Doherty, a construction worker from Braintree, Massachusetts. And that is the thing about art, folks. It hits us all. It hits our humanity, no matter what our work, no matter what our income, no matter our race and ethnicity or geography. And that's the thing about Walt Whitman's work. And again, thank you to John Doherty, and that's Braintree, Massachusetts, a construction worker who loves the structure and the poetry and the meaning and loves that it uplifts him. And that's what we try to do here on this show every day. People want more beautiful things in their life, and that's what we aim to do here. This is Lee Habib, John Doherty's story, his love affair with poetry, and Walt Whitman here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice, whose writing, you're sure to be captivated by. I had returned from my tour of duty overseas, carrying my orders to take 20 days leave and report back to Camp Pendleton for the remaining seven months of my enlistment. I decided to leave a couple days earlier, and as I was packing up to go, my mother came to me and said, you know, your sister has been transferred from Porter State Hospital to Agnew State Hospital in San Jose, and that she thought it would be a good idea if I went by to visit my sister. Well, I started arguing with her right away. I mean, I had no interest in spending any of the remaining leave I had um, visiting anybody, and let alone my sister, who had left home where my parents had deposited her at Porterville State Hospital 15 years earlier. Because raising a, a young girl with a Down syndrome, plus three boys and a husband overseas in the Marines, um, was a very difficult task. And so other than for a day or two, I had not seen my sister in 15 years, and I didn't know what I would do there. I didn't see any reason to go. But my mother kept insisting by telling me things like, well, you know, you're going to have to take care of her someday. And I thought, well, why am I taking care of her someday? I mean, you're her parents. I'm just her brother. And so um, we had this discussion, and I finally, in the end, I said, okay. And so I got my car and I drove down to Agnew. And I'd never been there. And when I pulled up front, the first thing I noticed was this building was surrounded by a cyclone fence. And I could see the patients uh, kind of wandering around or sitting around, not doing much, just walking around. There's not much for them to do there. And um, I got out of the car and I opened the gate and I went in. And when I, as soon as I got in there, they, some of these people started walking towards me, uh, talking to me as if they knew who I was or they thought I was someone they knew. And I had this, I wanted no part of this at all. I just really had never been in a place like this and many of them were disabled by a variety of disabilities. And so I just <clears throat> got up the steps real quick and I entered in through these double doors into the entranceway. And yet, as outside, people were coming to me, recognizing me, pointing at me. They wanted to talk to me. And so I'm trying to work my way through a small gathering of uh, people around me as they're reaching out to touch me and to talk to me. And I didn't know what to do. I just kept trying to get my way to the nurse's desk. But there was one young man who was before me and it was clear to me that he had something on his mind that he wanted to tell me. But the distance between the thought and the ability to speak was way too, too wide. He couldn't get over it. And so as he was sitting there trying to form words or syllables on his lips, his facial muscles contorted and his head would jerk. And, and it was a painful expression on his face. But finally, I got to the nurse's station and the nurse said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'd like to see Tony McClellan. And they said, then who are you? I said, I'm her older brother, and I've just got a few minutes I'm stopping in to visit and say hello. So they said, well, why don't you sign the guest register, and I'll go down and get her in the ward. 
So I watched her walk down this long hallway, the main hallway, and the end of the hallway was completely darkened. And so she saw her open this door and she disappeared into what looked like a ward from where I was standing. So I took the guest register and I opened it up to, uh, down to Tony's name and um, I saw something extraordinary. And that was is that no one had been to visit my sister in five years. The last visitor she had had was my mother. What surprised me even more was the date at which Tony went to Porterville occurred while we lived in the area. And though we spent many summers coming through here on our way to Southern California on school vacation, we never had any idea that she was now living there and my parents never made any or showed any interest in stopping and seeing her. And I felt, I felt this sense of shame I mean, I didn't know Tony. I was, I was a year older. Um, we lived at home together for five years until my mother just couldn't handle the absence um, of, of help and the strain of having a daughter with Down syndrome and three boys. All of a sudden, I heard my name called, and I turned around, and there was the nurse. And she was standing there holding the hand of this small, young adult girl who was holding his teddy bear. And I walked over, and as I stood in front of her, I remembered her. I remember mostly from the picture, the oval picture of her on my mother's dresser. She had two. She had one of Tony on the front lawn down at Camp Pendleton, and one of the two of us. And Tony was in, like, a Sunday dress, and I was wearing the traditional blue shorts, navy blue shorts with the blue suspenders, a white short sleeve shirt and a bow tie. And the two of us were standing next to each other on the lawn. And that comprised my entire memory of my sister. She was short, hair was flaky with dandruff. The dress was colorless and way too big for her. Her hair was cut in places like this that's not styled. Her hair was just cut. And she was standing with this kind of bewildered look on her face when the nurse bent over at the waist and turning to Tony, she said, Tony, this is your brother. And immediately she stepped forward and threw herself into my legs, hugging me and crying, my brother, my brother, my brother. And I'm standing in the middle of this lobby, looking down on the top of her head. She was so small. And I'm looking down on the top of her head, and people are kind of gathering around. There's a commotion going on. There's something happening here. What is this? And so pretty soon I had I had spectators, and the nurse and I, and Tony crying, and I didn't know what to do. I, you know, I was just a 20-year-old corporal. I didn't have any idea what I was supposed to do. So I bent down, and I got down on one knee, and I freed her arm from around my leg, and I looked at her, and she had big eyes, and wet with tears, and this teddy bear and and the face was clearly a down syndrome child and i said tony tony settle down here i'm stop this tony tony take it easy just relax here just take it easy okay just stop crying stop crying and so she tried to kind of hold it back and then i said to the nurse can we get out of here get can we get just get out of this place for now and she said certainly so i said to tony i said tony you and I go get something to eat. You want something to eat? And she goes, oh, hamburger, hamburger. I'm like, hamburger and a Diet Coke. And I said, okay. 
So we left, got in a car, and I drove to this restaurant. Ordered, ordered just what she wanted. She knew what she wanted. She wanted a Coke, no ice, black coffee, uh, french fries, and a hamburger. And she wouldn't give the menu back to the waitress because she wanted everything that had a photograph of it. And then she was pointing at trays going by with food on it. She was pointing she wanted to eat that. And she just seemed to have this kind of ravenous appetite in her eyes, but she certainly wasn't skinny. I mean, she wasn't malnourished or anything. So the nurse brings the food, uh, the waitress brings the food, and I'm sitting there trying to think of something to say. I, mean, I really didn't know what to say. And she just was really happy just eating the food. She was eating like a crab. She had alternate hands going in and out with, with hands, feeding herself. And finally, in the middle of her eating, she looked up at me and with this alert look in her eyes and said, Bathroom! Bathroom! I said, Bathroom? Bathroom? You need to use the bathroom? And she nods her head up and down, which was most of the communication she had was either facial expressions or nodding her head. And now she's nodding her head, she has to go to the bathroom. And the first thing that went through my mind is, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And when we continue more of the McClellan files, and again, we told you that you may not know him, but his storytelling, his voice, my goodness, well... You'll hear more of this story, what happens next. Bob McClellan finally reunites with his sister. The McClellan Files, here on Our American Stories. And send your stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We put every kind of story up on the air, and our favorites are yours. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Bob McClellan's story continues after these messages. stories and we continue with the McClellan files you're listening to Bob McClellan and he's in a restaurant with his sister a sister he hadn't seen in a very long time a sister who happens to have Down syndrome let's continue where we last left off so I quickly got up and I said okay well let's go before she got up though she took her napkin and folded it neatly she moved her plate and her drink into the center of the table, cleaned out her little area there, and climbed out of the booth. 
and reached up, took my hand, and we walked to the back of the restaurant. So we get to the back of the restaurant, and I've got two doors there, obviously, and I point to this, the door that said, women. And I'm pointing to it, and I said, now this is women. This is where you go. You go in here, you understand? Women, you're a woman, you go in here. Now, if you get any problems in there, there are other women in there. Ask them to give you a hand if you need any help. I'll wait for you out here. So she just nodded her head, seemed to understand what I was talking about, and disappeared into the ladies' room. So I stood there for a while and waited anxiously. And finally she came out and everything seemed fine. And we returned to the table and continued with our meal. I think the thing that stood out the most to me were the reactions of the people in the restaurant. I mean, clearly she wasn't welcome. She made other people feel uncomfortable. There was a couple walking through the restaurant and her kids were staring at, at Tony and the mother's admonishing them saying, you know, don't stare. It's not polite to stare. Just be glad, you know, that you have all of your fingers and toes and, you know, and just don't pay any attention to her. And it made me very angry, um, much to my surprise, but it brought back a memory one time when Tony was with us for a day. And um, I was just a small boy. And my mother comes running into the room and my sister had gotten out and says to me, your sister's being harassed by some kids across the street. Get out there and take care of those boys and bring her in immediately. So I jumped out of my chair and I ran over the air and I pulled this kid away from her and I pushed him to the ground. I grabbed the other kid and threw him to the ground. I gave him a kick, kicked him a couple times, took Tony by the hand and I walked her back in the house and continued on with whatever I was doing. And that's what that reminded me of. I felt like just getting out of that chair and throttling these kids and these people like my sister's a sideshow freak. So anyway, I got back to the booth and, and um, Tony finished her meal and we left. And so I was getting on at a pretty good pace. I wasn't going to be too late to pick up my date and head to the city for this party. And until we got to the grounds of the hospital. And once Tony realized where we were, she got really anxious and upset, and she started going, no, no, no. And she's, I look over, and she's got a grip on the handle of the car door, and she's holding on to the seat. And, uh, and I said, what's the matter? She goes, go with you. Go with you, my brother. I said, you, you can't go with me. I said, are you kidding? No, you can't go. No, go with you, my brother. And it was clear to me she did not want to go back to the hospital. She just kept repeating the same thing, and I kept trying to be rational. I kept saying, no, you can't go with me. I have some place to go. I have no place to put you. This is where you live. This is your home. This is your home, and you're going home whether you like it or not. I've got some place I've got to go. And so when we got there, you know, I had to get out of the car, and I had to go to the other side, open the door, and try to coax her out, and she just wasn't going to budge. So I found myself with the decision either I got to take her by the arm and yank her right out of the car and drag her up the stairs, or I have to reach in and pick her up bodily and carry her up the stairs. But a third idea got to me, and I said, Tony, and I got down close to her, and she's sitting there in the car looking at me. She's very upset. And I said, Tony, you come inside, and I will come back, and I'll visit you. 
I'll come back and see you again. And she's crying. And so I'm trying to appeal to her and say, you know, come on, come on, I'll come back. I'll, I'll, come on, I'll come back. And so she started to kind of get out of the car and I had her by the hand and I'm reminding her that I'm her brother and I'm family and I'll come back and I'll see her. Well, the nurses came out. Uh, well, as soon as the nurses came out, she just went crazy. So they're pulling her, not, I'm pulling her. They're holding her by the arms, trying to move her to the steps and into the ward. Tony's crying. She's trying to pull away, go with me. And uh, we get up the stairs and we get in there and the nurses managed to get her grip off of me and usher her down the hallway. And I immediately turned around and left and I went out and I got in my car. I, I, I had to I had to get my composure. I mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't understand what was going on. I didn't know what had just happened. But I did know that the scene with the nurses was something I remembered that came back to me sitting there in the car, was when we dropped her off. She was five, and we drove all the way out to the desert to Porterville. And um, there was just, my baby brothers were infants, and my mom and my dad and me in the station wagon, and we spent this night in this motel, and, and my mother just kept crying. She was sitting in front of the dresser, combing Tony's hair and putting ribbons and bows in it. And I'm standing in the doorway of the motel. I was over in the pool and my mother was in there, you know, crying and Tony was smiling. And, and then the next thing I know, we're in the car and we drive onto another campus of enormous grounds and long sidewalks and white-coated people walking around and multiple buildings and... It looked like a life from right off the cover of a brochure. I mean, you would have thought you were looking at yeah, <laughs> some picturesque, bucolic, pastoral place where everybody's dying to go. And so we get there and we pull up outside this building. And my mother gets out and she's walking to the sidewalk and the nurses come out. And then they're talking and they're talking back and forth. And then... The moment came when the nurses came and took Tony's hands from my mom and turned to start walking her inside. And Tony rightfully sensed something bad was going to happen. And so she starts pulling and crying. And my mother, unfortunately, had the terrible task of turning her back on her and walking back to the car to get out of there because nothing, nothing attractive, nothing purposeful, nothing happy was going to come out of this scene. I was in the back of the wagon and I'm looking out the back window as if I got a view. I'm looking at a movie and I see them taking Tony back into back and they open up this door, this building, and she disappeared inside as, as we drove off. And that's what had just happened. And so I sat there and I got the car started finally. I lit a cigarette and I I headed off to the city. And I thought about my promise to come back and see her. I'd be back in Mountain View uh, when I got discharged. I was going to college. I had seven months left to go. So I figured, well, I don't have to worry about this now, but I'll deal with it later. And somehow or another, the thing about the promise kept nagging at me because I knew that I made this promise to her and that if I didn't come back to see her, there would be no one going in my place. As I drove to the city, little did I realize at all that this encounter would alter in an unanticipated and unplanned fashion the direction of my life for the next 47 years until she died. And um, when I got out, after seven months, 
I did go see her. And I went to see her every Saturday. And our relationship grew from that. And that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the voice of the American people. Well, we don't need screenwriters here, folks. Your stories are better. Bob McClellan's story, his sister's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about courage here on the show. And this next one, well, it was sent to us by one of the smartest and best people I know in Chicago, Noel Moore, one of those guys who should have his own radio show, but he's too busy working for a living and taking care of his family and his hometown. And we are going to produce this one up for him and do it the justice it deserves, and here is Hillsdale intern Monty Montgomery with the story of Jason Seaman, an ordinary man who did something truly extraordinary. It happened on a Friday, like any other. It's a 924 right now. I want to make you aware of some uh, breaking and developing news that we are working on here in the uh, 24-Hour News 8 newsroom. Stand by, active shooter, Noblesville Schools, active shooter, Noblesville Schools, stand by for further. Noblesville West, Noblesville West. Word of a shooting situation at Noblesville West Middle School. Noblesville West Middle School, if you know it, it's east of Morse Reservoir, uh, north of the Fox Prairie Golf area. Very limited information right now. We're going to learn a lot more in the minutes to come, but we do want to let you know what we know so far. Oh, yes. No 100, Noblesville Dispatch, active shooter, Noblesville West Middle School, 19,900, Road. We do begin with breaking news for our viewers in the West. We want to show you these pictures, aerial shot of a middle school in Noblesville, Indiana. What has become a familiar scene, students appear to be evacuating, running from their own school after reports that there has been a shooter there at Noblesville West Middle School. We don't have any word yet on injuries don't know how many people may have been hurt, but we do know, according to the fire department that has responded, that a shooter, uh, suspected shooter, is in custody. Battalion 307, I'm being reported that the, the shooter has been contained. Do you want everybody to stage or go in? We only have two patients, two patients, one critical, one's going to be very stable. Okay. Two patients. One critical, one stable. 
Two people are now recovering from gunshot wounds in Indiana after deputies say a middle school student started firing two handguns in the middle of class. Yeah, there's a teacher that's being called the hero this morning for his quick response during the survey. I think what what is so really impressive here is that this is a school shooting where we're talking about no fatalities. And a big reason for that is this teacher. Meantime, police and school officials say those emergency preparations they made here paid off today. Noblesville is grateful tonight, grateful for one teacher. But who was that teacher? Well, according to those who know him, a man of extraordinary talents athletically, but one of the most humble and hardworking team players in the field and in the classroom. Raised in a family of hardworking, faithful, and community-minded parents, that teacher's seventh-grade science teacher at Noblesville West Middle School, Jason Seaman, an ordinary man who did something extraordinary to save the lives of his students in his classroom. It was nine o'clock at Noblesville West Middle School, and in Jason Seaman's class, students had just started to take a science test. Nothing suggested anything out of the ordinary would soon happen, even when a student got up and requested permission to go use the restroom. That student that Jason Seaman had let out of class came back with two loaded handguns. The unthinkable was happening at Noblesville. It was like halfway through class. He pulled the gun out of his pocket and everyone just started screaming and trying to like, get behind stuff like the desks and tables. Jody Don is a former SWAT team member who responded to two active shootings in Colorado. If you see a gun like this open, what does that mean? He's teaching them how to recognize when the shooter is reloading his gun and teaching them defense tactics. Oh, there you go. Good, good. How and when to pounce. Run, hide, fight. These three tactics are commonly recommended to teachers by safety experts, such as the one you just heard, as the best way of surviving an active shooter situation. But for Jason Seaman, a former defensive end at Southern Illinois University, running away wasn't an option. A two-sport all-area performer in both basketball and football during high school, Jason Seaman was named News Gazette Athlete of the Year his senior year in 2007. Seaman had been trained to take on the hardest opponents on both the field and the court, but now he would have to do so in his own classroom. The stakes were much higher than a scoreboard. It was life or death, and losing was not an option. So Jason Seaman did what he needed to do. That's when, according to 13-year-old Ethan Stonebreaker, his teacher threw a basketball at the gunman to distract him, then running towards the bullet. We saw one girl fall to the ground, and our science teacher immediately ran at him, watered the gun out of his hand, and tackled him to the ground. If it weren't for him, more of us would have been injured for sure. He did something that most people wouldn't dare to do, but it's very good that he did. Very good indeed. Jason Seaman, in an act of tremendous courage, managed to disarm and subdue the gunman using only his bare hands, taking three bullets in the process 
to the hip, abdomen, and forearm. But Jason's heroics did not stop there. As Jason Seaman laid on the ground with critically injured student Ella Whistler, he continued to hold the gunman, yelling to his frightened students to call 911 and attempting to keep Ella calm in the situation. After a harrowing couple of minutes, the police and paramedics finally arrived and Jason was taken to the hospital for surgery. held a fundraiser at this baseball game for Siemens medical costs along with 13-year-old Ella Whistler, also shot that day and critically injured. She remains in the hospital, though the school says she is improving. Jason Seaman was immediately hailed as a hero after the shooting. But what kind of man would run into a hail of bullets to save the lives of others? A man, according to his brother, that is familiar with struggle and adversity on the field. A father a great teammate and a hard worker who fought to get back on the field after tearing his ACL and having to endure multiple surgeries. Jason Seaman was just an everyday American from flyover country who stepped up to the situation at hand without thinking twice about it. And the ever humble man himself, Jason Seaman continues to avoid the spotlight. So much so that we didn't even get a response from him or his family to interview. But that's just the kind of person Jason Seaman is. But I'll let Jason's words speak for themselves. Here's Seaman at his only press conference. First off, uh, as a person who isn't looking for attention, uh, nor entirely comfortable with the situation I'm currently in, uh, I want to make it clear that uh, my actions on that day, uh, in my mind, were the only acceptable actions I could have done given the circumstances. I deeply care for my students and their well-being. So that is why I did what I did that day. I can't say enough how proud of Ella I am and how we all should be. Her courage and strength at such a young age is nothing short of remarkable, and we should all uh, continue to keep her uh, in our minds as she continues to recover. The community poured their support out for Seaman as well. Listen to some of these remarks made by citizens of Noblesville and Americans at large because of this quick response today that we think lives were saved. I can't believe um, what he did. Um, I can't wait to get the opportunity to shake his hand. At some point soon, uh, I want to shake that man's hand. He's an absolute hero. Um, He is actually the reason that uh, my daughter is actually here today. It wouldn't surprise me that Jason would step up to be the guy to do that. In the face of something like this, uh, you just hope that there's more teachers and, and uh, it doesn't even need to be a teacher, just more human beings like himself who, who are willing to put themselves on the line to, to help out the kids, you know, the future of America. And great job on that, Monty. And my goodness, a guy who didn't want the spotlight the opposite of the Kardashians. They do nothing. They seek attention. He does something extraordinary. Doesn't want the cameras on him. That is the American character right there, by the way, folks. 
ordinary folks doing extraordinary things. And by the way, Aristotle, at least the quote is attributed to him, said, courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all others. And thanks to Monty, our Hillsdale intern, where they actually teach Aristotle and Shakespeare and the Constitution. What a crazy idea. And they push their kids hard at Hillsdale to learn and to grow. Hillsdale College, thank you for sharing your best and brightest with us. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. Have the family watch them. You can't get a better education anywhere. Jason Seaman's story, an American story here on Our American Stories. He didn't even have a map The Rocky Mountains he called home He only lived just further roam Carson, Carson, old Kit Carson Mountain man in buckskin tan Help keep this country free This is Our American Stories and you were listening to Fess Parker singing old Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is one of the most complex characters in American history. We stumbled upon his story in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Creating and Civilizing the American West by Phil Lanchett. And we've done some stories on volume one of his great book. Carson's epic adventure in war and exploration embody the American spirit and its struggle for identity, the good, the bad, that come with the great conquest of the American West. All are summed up in this one man's epic life. And now we're about to bring you the story of Kit Carson, and it's driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of gunfighters, highwaymen, and vigilantes, and one of America's best storytellers about the American West. The mountain men were responsible for blazing nearly every trail to the Pacific coast, for discovering the natural wonders of the trans-Mississippi West, and for providing the muscle that fueled the fur trade. Yet few gained national recognition. An outstanding exception is Kit Carson who becomes the most famous mountain man of them all. Kit Carson is portrayed heroically in books and articles and as a character in movies. He is also the subject of a television series. He is one of those figures who made us proud to be an American and whetted the youthful appetite for grand adventures. Carson is present at the creation, it seems. He has witnessed the dawn of the trans-Mississippi American West in all its vividness and brutality. Place names throughout the West recall Kit Carson. There's Carson Pass and the Carson River in the Sierras. In Nevada, there's Carson Valley and Carson City, the capital of Nevada. There's the military post, Fort Carson, and the town, Kit Carson, in Colorado. One of Colorado's highest mountains is Kit Carson Peak in the Sangre de Cristo Range. And in Taos, New Mexico, 
There's Kit Carson Park. Christopher Houston Carson is born in a log cabin on Christmas Eve, 189, in Madison County, Kentucky. The same year, in the same state, in which Abraham Lincoln is born. The 11th in a line of 15 siblings, he is nicknamed Kit while still an infant, and the name sticks. When he is two, his Scotch-Irish family picks up and migrates westward to a farm near Boone's Lick, Missouri, home of the Daniel Boone clan. Here's Memphis native Hampton Sides, author of the national bestseller, Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. His family was good friends with the Boone family. They intermarried. These were backwoodsmen. They were rough and ready folks who um, were in search of opportunity. For their own safety, the Carsons and other pioneers at Boone's Lick dwell in a state of perpetual vigilance. They live in sturdy cabins built near forts and well-armed sentries patrol constantly. All cabins are designed with rifle, loopholes, or firing ports in case of an Indian attack. Everyone knew a family whose child or mother had been carried off by Indians. Kit's sister, Mary, recalls, we would carry bits of red cloth with us to drop if we were captured by Indians so our people could trace us. Despite all this, the young Kit Carson plays with Indian children whose parents come to Boone's Lick to trade goods. From an early age, Kit learns that Indians are not monolithic, that tribes could differ substantially and violently from one another, and that each group must be dealt with separately on its own terms. Kit is not quite nine when his father is killed while felling a tree and the large Carson family is left in desperate straits. Kit drops out of school to work full-time on the family farm and hunts in his spare time to help put meat on the table. At 14 years old, Kit is apprenticed at a saddlery. The teenager hates both the work and the confinement in the saddle shop, but it proves to be a blessing in disguise. Many of the shop's customers are trappers, traders, teamsters, or scouts on the Santa Fe Trail. They're stirring tales of the way west and what lay over the far horizon sets the boy's imagination afire. Here's the executive director of the Western History Association, Paul Hutton. The West offers boundless opportunity the freedom from all the restraints of family, all the restraints of a shopkeeper's life, and of course, the promise of adventure, of danger, of excitement. And so he runs away. He, he does a huck fin and lights out for the territories. At 16 in August, 1826, Kit turns a boy's adventure into a man's livelihood. When he crosses the Missouri border, and heads west with a merchant caravan on the newly opened Santa Fe Trail. After 900 miles on the trail, Carson settles in Taos, New Mexico, 
where it develops fluency in Spanish, French, and a half dozen Indian tongues. And he also masters the universal sign language used by Western tribes. And yet, for all his facility with language, Kit Carson is illiterate. Taos is the capital of the Southwestern fur trade, teeming with trappers, Americans, Frenchmen, Canadians, all of them scruffy and sunburned after months spent trapping in the Rockies. Carson wanted to be a part of this fraternity of men. And these greasy, grizzled, hairy, often drunk, international cast of characters who knew the rivers of the West and had been to all these amazing places. Uh, he wanted to be one of these guys as quickly as they'd have him. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson, his story, here on Our American Stories. A mountain man's a lonely man and he leaves a lot behind It ought to have been different, but you oftentimes will find That story doesn't always go the way you had in mind And we return to the life of Kit Carson as told and driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Let's pick up where we left off. In 1829, and not yet 20 years old, Carson joins a fur-trapping brigade of 40 mountain men who venture into Arizona, most of which is still untouched by fur trappers. There probably was not a more dangerous profession in America at that time uh, than being a mountain man. There was the danger of grizzly bears, hypothermia, starvation. These men went into trackless wilderness for months at a time, all in pursuit of beaver pelts. But the greatest reason why so few mountain men have ventured into Arizona territory are the Apache. The Apache delight in torturing and killing their enemies, especially the nearby Pima and Papago Indians. In this world, the trapper's best chance at survival is for himself to adapt completely and entirely to the wilderness and to know intimately the Indians and their habits and their warfare. If the mountain men could do that, they survived. If not, they died. The West is where races intersect, cultures intersect, sometimes violently, more often not. Kit Carson moves easily in that world. He's not opposed to confronting people straight on and engaging in combat, taking a scalp, if need be, to make a point. But that doesn't mean he couldn't sit down and break bread the very next week. He understood what was expected of him by Native peoples that he came in contact with in terms of peaceful relationships and trade relationships but also in terms of conflict. And he understood that retribution must follow crime and follow it immediately and harshly if one was to survive 
in this environment. Every summer, the big fur companies organize what was known as the Mountain Man Rendezvous. And this was held high in the beaver country. It could be in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. As always happens at these gatherings, various bands of Indians come to trade, gamble, and drink with the mountain men. And it's not uncommon for trappers to take squaws for their wives during this month-long festival. One of the most popular women attending the rendezvous of 1835 is a young Arapaho beauty named Singing Grass. She catches Carson's eye, but another man is equally smitten. He's a very large, swaggering, blustering French-Canadian trapper known as the Bully of the Mountains. He's also an expert shot. Singing Grass chooses Carson and rejects the Frenchman. Over the next several days, Frenchman goes on a bender and begins to menace anyone who crosses his path. After being ignored by other mountain men, he strolls over to Carson's camp and announces how he particularly enjoys thrashing Americans. Carson springs to his feet and exclaims, I'll rip your damn guts. Frenchman says nothing but mounts his horse and rides out in front of camp, daring Carson to fight him. Carson quickly jumps on a horse and gallops up to the Frenchman. They stop so close to each other that their horses' heads touch. Both men draw guns and fire at precisely the same moment. The Frenchman's bullet creases Carson's head, taking scalp and hair with it. Carson's bullet goes through the Frenchman's right hand and blows away his thumb, causing him to drop his gun. Carson draws a second pistol and prepares to deliver the coup de grace. Gingerly holding his maimed appendage, the Frenchman begs for his life. Satisfied that he has humiliated him, Carson turns and rides away, says Carson. We won't have any more problems with this bully Frenchman anymore, will we? <laughs> Singing grass and Carson marry after Carson offers her father a bride price of five blankets, three mules, and a gun. Carson is 25 years old. Like many of the trappers, Carson settled down with the American Indian woman. He found that this marriage was certainly a marriage of convenience in the sense that he had someone on the trail with him who helped do all the thousand and one tasks that had to be done. But it was the first love of his life. He was devoted to her. After giving birth to their second daughter in 1840, Singing Grass dies of complications. And then shortly later in an accident, the baby dies. She was a good wife to me, Carson tells a friend years later. I never came in from hunting that she didn't have warm water ready for my cold feet. Adding to Kit's pain, America is experiencing intense growing pains. The era of the mountain man is coming to an end. Decades of trapping has destroyed the beaver population 
and the once fashionable beaver hat is now being replaced with one made of silk. Every summer throughout the 1840s, there were fewer and fewer beaver pelts. And this was a, a consequence of just how amazingly good these guys were at what they did. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. We trapped down the river, but found no beaver. The country was barren. It became necessary to try our hand at something else. The beaver market collapses, and Carson finds himself out of work, widowed, and shouldering the burdens of parenthood alone. He is 29. With his pockets empty and his future uncertain, Kit brings his daughter Adeline east and leaves her with family in Missouri to make sure she receives the education he never had and to protect her from the struggle that lies ahead. But as he boards a whistling steamboat in St. Louis for a trip up the Missouri, his prospects change when he strikes up a conversation with a passenger. How far are you taking her? I am leading an expedition through the Rocky Mountains. You ever been to the mountains, sir? It's a far piece. I'll probably take you where you want to go. Well met, sir. John C. Fremont. Kit Carson. John C. Fremont is an American military lieutenant and an explorer who's about to embark on an expedition to survey and map the American West. And he has yet to hire a guide. Although Fremont has his doubts, he hires Carson on the spot. Carson and Fremont were kind of an odd couple from the start. Fremont is quite well-educated, a very flamboyant guy. Carson, on the other hand, is unassuming, has this wry sense of humor. The boy's gonna make it? He's always giving someone else the credit. Fremont and Carson blaze an overland route to the Pacific, a route that has already been discovered. Carson, join me with the flag. But it's virtually unused by anyone except mountain men and Indians. Look at all that out there, as far as I can see. By May of 1846, the soon-to-be-called Oregon Trail is completed. Here's Sherry Monahan, president of the Western Writers of America. They were the first people to figure out where they could ford rivers, what was the safest route where you didn't have to climb mountains, and they were the ones that led all of the pioneers out to populate and tame the Wild West. Dubbed the Pathfinder, Fremont's name reaches Lewis and Clark's status, and Carson's heroics become American legend. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson. You're listening to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and he's one of our best storytellers in this country. More on the life of Kit Carson after these messages.
continue now with the story of Kit Carson. One of the things that Carson did during one of the expeditions with Fremont was they encountered some uh, Hispanic uh, wayfarers who had had their horses stolen from them. The New Mexicans have been attacked by Indians, and uh, the kind of mindset of the frontiersman was that you didn't allow this kind of behavior to go on, that you had to make a statement. Rather spontaneously, Carson decides to pursue these Indian horse thieves. The Indians were a large group, but nevertheless, Carson and his companion snuck up on the band, killed several of them, retrieved all the horses, brought back the horses and several Indian scalps to Fremont's camp. This really impressed Fremont, Carson risking his life for a complete stranger. In August 1844, Fremont has his expedition reports bound and published on nearly every page. He lavishes praise upon his fearless scout. Carson became a great romantic figure as an explorer, as a guide, as a frontiersman, as an Indian fighter. In these books that were supposed to be reports, they were actually grand adventure tales. These books were bestsellers in their day and were used as handbooks by hundreds of thousands of people going west. Here's American West historian Sally Denton. Immigrants would be in their wagons holding that, and it would say, this is where you're going to find fresh water. This is where there's going to be grass where you can graze your cattle. It was really uh, the first uh, map of its kind in America. But following the unlikely pattern of his life, Carson's mission to map the Western territories is about to take on even greater significance. An unexpected dispatch arrives from the White House. It's from President Polk and the Secretary of War. President Polk is determined to push America's western border all the way to the Pacific. California. It says we are to continue our fine work in the West. Carson and Fremont's exploratory expedition has just become a military mission. I shall assert the right to that portion of our territory which lies beyond the Rocky Mountains. President Polk had a vision of what America should look like. He wanted all of it. And he vowed that he would get it all, either by purchasing or, or by war, within one term. This is the execution of Thomas Jefferson's vision for continent-wide expansion. And the term manifest destiny is coined 42 years after Jefferson acquired the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon in 1803. On April 25th, 1846, Mexican cavalry attacks a group of U.S. soldiers. Eighteen days later, Congress declares war on Mexico. It's the beginning of the Mexican War. Navy warships close in on the California coast, and Army troops advance from the east. Fremont and Carson arrive in California, and there in Northern California, they support the Bear Flaggers in the Bear Flaggers' capture of Sonoma. As a reward for his valuable service, 
Carson rides to Washington, D.C. with a thick packet of sealed letters to deliver the good news to President Polk. But on his way, a greater duty redirects his path. Here's American frontier historian Derwood Ball. Kit Carson ran into uh, Stephen Watts Kearney leading first United States dragoons overland from Santa Fe to help finish the uh, conquest of California. We're going back to the West Coast. Kearney ordered me to join him as his guide. I'd done so. Made me believe he had the right to order me. Kit now leads General Stephen Kearney and 300 of his cavalry troopers to California. And one of those cavalry troopers happens to be the son of the famous Sacagawea. Carney also has a direct connection to the Lewis and Clark expedition. He is married to the daughter of William Clark. Now, before they get to California, they discover from some Mexicans they captured near the Arizona-California border that there's a revolt going on in California against American rule. In December of 1846, Kearney orders an attack at Mule Hill in San Pasquale, some 35 miles north of San Diego. But his weary men and exhausted mules that they're riding are outnumbered by well-trained Mexican lancers on fine horses. Americans are trapped on Mule Hill no cover and dwindling supplies. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Don't take the shot unless you got it. It's a desperate situation. They've run out of food. The only thing they have to eat are the mules. And the only reinforcements are about 30 miles away in San Diego. Despite all this, in the finest tradition of the U.S. Cavalry, Kearney orders a charge. The battle interrupts is known as the Battle of San Pasquale. And Carson is in the thick of it from beginning to end. By the end of the second day, Carney has lost 18 men and a dozen others, including Carney himself, have been wounded. Carney's last hope is to send a messenger on foot through enemy lines to get help from Marines and sailors in San Diego. Carson. We need supplies. I'll take care. Without hesitation, Kit Carson follows orders once again. When darkness falls, Carson, an Indian scout, and a Lieutenant Edward Beale begin their journey. Just before dawn, the three split up to avoid detection. We need to get barefoot. Before dawn, the three men begin their journey, but they begin it by creeping and crawling for several miles through enemy lines. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. I had to crawl about two miles. And having had the misfortune to lose our shoes, we had to travel barefooted in a country covered with prickly pear and rocks. And then they split up and take three different routes, about 30 miles each, 
to San Diego. I need to speak with the commander of this outpost immediately. Within hours, Commodore Stockton sends a force of 200 Marines and sailors to San Pasqual. And the Mexican army, seeing them come, gallops away. Kit stays behind, unable to walk for a week because of the condition of his feet. A year later, the U.S. concludes the Mexican War. And through the Mexican Cession, acquires another 500,000 square miles of territory, adding some 20-25% more territory to the United States. And now the United States truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest destiny is now a reality. And when we come back, the final segment in this epic story of Kit Carson. continue with the final segment of the life of Kit Carson. Kit Carson went to the West for the freedom and openness to escape from the constraints of society back home, back in the States. But then, of course, he brought it all with him. The dream of a continental nation has been met, and America stretches from sea to sea. The West is transformed and he sees it all, but he's also one of the major instruments that brings about that change. Carson is once again dispatched to Washington, D.C. He arrives at St. Louis and then catches a train to deliver Fremont's field reports to President Polk in May of 1847, some three months after his departure. Washington, D.C., at the time of Kit Carson's arrival, was becoming much more sophisticated. And just imagine, this man who had been living most of his life out on the frontier has got to come back to this society. He had to be very uncomfortable. Off the trail, Kit is a shy, unassuming man, content to keep to himself. But in Washington, his celebrity is overwhelming thanks to his real-life heroics and some 70 Kit Carson dime novels that are consumed by Americans from coast to coast. Everyone wants to meet Kit Carson, and that's because Kit Carson 
is the very living, breathing symbol of the American frontier and of our expansion westward. And of course, everyone wants to hear from his lips what the opportunities are for America in the West. The runaway apprentice has come a long ways. Carson's married three times and fathers ten children. His first two wives are Indian squaws, but his third wife is a beautiful, slender, 14-year-old Mexican girl named Josefa. She is 18 years his junior. Carson converts to Catholicism, and the two are married in 1843 in the Taos Parish Church. Carson thinks he might spend his remaining years as a peaceful family man, no such luck. The wave of migration continues to surge west. Clashes between settlers and Indians escalate into what becomes known as the Indian Wars. We come from the Santa Fe Trail. There's a woman and child, they're both missing. Would you help us? Duty calls Kit Carson once again. A Missouri trader named James White is headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his wife, Anne, and infant daughter. When their party is attacked by Apache Indians, James is killed, and the infant and the wife, Anne, are taken captive. Carson is illiterate, but if there's a story to be read on the ground, there's no better man to do it. The formative experience for Kit Carson was when he worked as a mountain man. His ability to track animals then became a very important asset in his ability to track human beings. It's them. Finally, late on the 12th day, Carson sees plumes of smoke curling skyward in the distance. There's no time to lose. Yeah. Yeah. When Carson discovers the Apache camp, he finds Ann White dead, lying on her back with a steel-tipped arrowhead daubed with rattlesnake blood struck through her heart. She's still warm. Couldn't have been dead more than five minutes. She has been horribly abused, covered with bruises and lacerations. And she's also been gang raped day after day by her Apache captors. Carson finds something else. Here's a quote from his autobiography. We found a book in camp in which I was represented as a, a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. Mrs. White must have read it, knowing that I lived nearby, must have prayed for my appearance in order that she might be saved. Ann White's infant is never found and the incident haunts Carson until the day he dies. The way that you wander is the way that you choose. Sunshine or thunder, a man will always wonder where the fair wind But the Whites are just a drop in the ocean among the tidal wave of travelers rolling westward, a wave that can be traced back to the discovery of gold in California, 
news of which Kit Carson carried on one of his courier missions back east. In 1849 alone, some 100,000 Americans have set out for California, and the numbers will only increase. Carson was so effective in fighting the Indians and in making peace with them that by 1853, his appointed Indian agent to the Utes, a banned New Mexican official's brand, the most difficult to manage in the territory. The Utes were a very special tribe to Kit Carson. He absolutely loved them. He rode with them, uh, he hunted with them, he knew them quite well. When the Civil War erupts in 1861, Carson resigns as an Indian agent and joins the Union as a colonel of the New Mexico Volunteers. He commands two battalions at the Battle of Valverde in 1862, which slows the Confederates from an advance up the Rio Grande Valley. Now, the Apache and Navajo take advantage of the Civil War and renew their raids in New Mexico. Over the previous year alone, more than 30,000 sheep have been stolen and uh, some 300 people killed by the Indians. Carson leads expeditions against both tribes. Carson lived in New Mexico his entire adult life, and public enemy number one was the Navajo. Everybody in New Mexico, every Hispanic person, had some friend or family member who had been killed by the Navajo or had been stolen by the Navajo. And I think he thought a reservation on the Pecos was as good as any that had been put forward as to how to end this cycle of violence. The campaign against the Navajo ends with the removal of 9,000 tribe members to a reservation in New Mexico. The Navajo call the removal the Long Walk and about 200 of them die on the journey. The 53-year-old Carson rides in the vanguard along with some of his favorite Ute warriors who are longtime bitter enemies of the Navajo. Carson doesn't like clearing out the Navajo, but the alternative is to ignore their raids in the midst of the Civil War. Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning Indian novelist in Scott Mamaday. He knew the Indians. He had known them from an early time as a mountain man. He probably knew Indians better than any other white man of his time. He knew what uh, they would stand and how they could be brought to terms with the army. And, uh, you know, he didn't hesitate, I think, to, to act on the basis of his knowledge. Before the Civil War ends, Carson is promoted to Brigadier General. Following the war, Carson returns to his family, but duty keeps calling. In 1868, with chest pain so bad he could hardly breathe, Carson brings a delegation of Ute chiefs to Washington to negotiate a treaty, establishing a permanent reservation on the very ground the tribe claims as its own. Here he is, this Indian fighter, known for his various campaigns. And yet, he was also a peacemaker and a diplomat. I think the trick to understanding Carson is to go back to that idea that, for him, there was no such thing as, as the American Indian. He 
sided with certain groups and other groups were his enemy throughout his life. Shortly after Carson returns home, his wife, Wasifa, gives birth to their eighth child, but complications set in. And within two weeks, his wife dies and he's holding her in his arms. Then, just one month later, on the afternoon of May 23rd, 1868, Carson's aortic aneurysm ruptures. <coughs> Calls out suddenly from his pallet of buffalo robes on the floor. Uh, Doc. Uh, adios. Kit Carson passes from life into legend. And great job to the whole team, and thank you, Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and thank you also to Mr. Phil Anschutz and his terrific book. By the way, get it if you can. Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2. So many great stories. We're going to get to a bunch of them. Thomas Jefferson, who starts it all. Of course, Tecumseh, Chief Red Cloud, Brigham Young, Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Mark Twain. Those stories coming up over the next weeks and months here on Our American Stories.